from the EAH team. Welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join hosts Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing? What have you been up to? Hey, Alicia. What can I say? It's conference season. I'm traveling <laughs> all over the US right now. Well, also, to be fair, we met up in Rotterdam. I think that, that was one of like, our first one. Yeah. Trips to, uh, trips to Houston um, for the... Uh, for the big um, uh, World Hydrogen uh, America or North America conference. And then I was off to uh, the CRU Nitrogen and Syngas conference in Tulsa. So I've been on the road. And that's that's before we even start talking about the fact that the US right now is in the middle or maybe closing in on towards the first end to the, um, the latest 45V tax credit rulings. So yeah, it's been all go. What about you? You must be really, really busy. Um, I have also been busy. I'm home now, which is fantastic. I was traveling, I think, for the last three weeks, uh, a lot of Middle East. And then I went to Kobe and then Hong Kong, which is great to renew my permanent residency. And then uh, we had an offsite in Singapore, which we, or we have a big office. So um, I'm home from all of that. We had the pleasure of hearing from the prime minister directly in Japan about the new hydrogen roadmap and uh, generally the, the energy um, plan for the future. And, and that it was obviously great to hear the, the role that they think hydrogen and ammonia are going to play in their future decarbonization. So I think the total was the $7 trillion budget and then that's yen. And then, but still, even if it's yen, 170 trillion does. Uh, <laughs> you, you, mean, you mean that's not a small number? <laughs> still pretty big. Um, and then uh, for for hydrogen and ammonia alone, it's 170 billion over the next 15 years. So this is this is pretty interesting, and and you can see actually with our next guest, um, we have uh, Masek Lukowski, who's the head of strategy and business development at Amogee. Amogy essentially makes green ammonia fuel cells, and they have raised quite a bit of money already with their technology. So their first round had, I think, Amazon's Climate Pledge Fund, AP Ventures, SK, Aramco, and DCVC. But this last round appears to be almost entirely Japanese. So they had a Marinucci Climate Tech Growth Fund, MUFG Bank, Mitsubishi Corporation, MHI or, you know, um, Mitsubishi Heavy Industry. And this last one, I think, is American, Synergy Marine Group. But that brings them to a total of $220 million raised to date for a startup uh, in 2020. So that's pretty interesting. And I think when we get the guest on, he'll tell us a little bit more in detail about that origin story. Well, it sounds like we should get him on. Let's get him on. Hi, Magic. Uh, how are you doing? 
Doing great. And thank you so much for having me here. It's great to have you. I mean, Emma G has been in the news all over the place. So it's wonderful to hear straight uh, from the source what's been going on. I guess first, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about the origin story and your role at the organization, just a little bit about how, how you got there as well. Sure. So I'll start with the more exciting part of it. That is the story of Amogee. Amogee was founded about two and a half years ago. So it's a fairly young startup, but at the same time, we have grown quite considerably during this time. So we went from four original founders to a team of about 140 people now. The company was founded in Brooklyn Navy Yard. That's still our headquarter, but we have expanded geographically, both domestically to Houston, that's where our manufacturing facility will be, and also internationally to Norway and now also Singapore. And this is really focusing on these countries as the centers for maritime decarbonization. So Amogee was founded by four colleagues who did together their PhDs at MIT. After graduating, they went their own separate ways and did something else, came back together a few years later and decided they really wanted to do something in the decarbonization space. They saw the potential with ammonia for decarbonization of mobility applications and for power generation. And that's how Amogee was started. We, as I mentioned, have grown quite considerably since. Uh, I was a part of this process. I joined the company about a year ago. At that point, I believe we're about a third of the current size. And my role is to lead the strategy and business development uh, verticals for, for Amogee. My background is engineering. I spent most of my career as engineer, first working on renewables, then I moved towards oil and gas. But even within oil and gas, I worked on decarbonization initiatives, hydrogen, ammonia, uh, work on the value chain. I moved over time to m and uh, just to put my commercial hat for a period of time. Uh, and last year I joined Amogee and it's been really a, a fantastic process. In, um, we'll forgive your sins for working in the oil and gas sector first. I think if we uh, condemn people for that, we'd have very few left in the hydrogen space, I suspect. But um, maybe for those who are less familiar with energy and the story, and um, potentially also the technology, can you just actually explain a little bit about the technology itself? So, you know, firstly, what is it? Is it a fuel cell? Is it combustion? You know, how does that actually work? Uh, some listeners are fairly familiar with fuel cells. Others are not. Um most people, I think, are familiar with combustion here, but just that kind of, again, step by step, walk us through that. And I guess the obvious thing, once you've explained what it actually is, is why is it different from everyone else? So a bit of color around that, I think, would be great for our listeners. Of course. So maybe first I can explain the name, Amogee. So Amogee was derived from ammonia and energy. And this is what we do. We provide a complete ammonia to power conversion system. This ammonia to power conversion system can be used in multiple different applications. Some of the early applications are in maritime sector, and that's for powering the vessels, for providing propulsion, and also distributed power generation. But ultimately, ammonia is really a fantastic 
vector for hydrogen. So it's a cost-effective and proven way of moving hydrogen from one place in the world to another, and by doing so, reducing the cost of transportation and storage and providing a, a very energy-dense storage medium. So I mentioned that Amogy provides a complete box where you effectively put in ammonia and you get electricity out. What sits inside the box consists of two parts. The first one is decomposition of ammonia into hydrogen. It's a system that's referred to as either cracker or reformer. What it does is that it takes the ammonia molecule that is NH3 and decomposes it into nitrogen and hydrogen. The advantage of doing this is that we're not burning ammonia. Burning ammonia would typically result in emissions of nitrous oxide, NOx. We don't do that, and therefore we don't have this issue. The second part of the process is taking the hydrogen and producing electricity with it. And we can do it in multiple different ways, but what we chose to incorporate in our system is a fuel cell. It's a traditional low-temperature PAM fuel cell. So what we get out of this is the advantage of robust and proven way of making electricity out of hydrogen, but we also get the low cost of ammonia. So we get the all of the advantages that come from using ammonia as fuel, that is high energy density. Um, it's actually higher compared to even liquid hydrogen. And we also get all of the advantages that come from very robust ammonia value chain. And Alicia would know a lot about this, much more than I do, but ammonia is a very well-established commodity in the world. It's the second most commonly produced chemical. It's available in 200 ports around the world. So, you know, it's really the availability of fuel and ability to use the existing infrastructure. So if I if I may, and I'm sorry as I warned you at the beginning, and as the team and listeners are familiar, I do jump in. Can I just clarify why the choice of a PEM fuel cell? And I ask because it is more expensive than an alkaline fuel cell, and there are companies in the market that have uh, crackers of ammonia into alkaline fuel cells, GenCell from Israel, for example, being one. And then there are people who would argue if you're going to be using it continuously and you're generating high temperatures from a cracker, why not go straight into a phosphoric acid fuel cell or a solid um, oxide fuel cell, which have much higher round-trip efficiencies? So just be interested to understand why PEM is, is an interesting choice. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, we like PEM fuel cells for two reasons. First, it's a very proven, well-established technology. And second, they have relatively small size and low weight. So if you think about deployment of this type of technologies and applications like heavy-duty transportation where you're inherently space-constrained and in many cases also weight-constrained, PEM fuel cell is a great choice. So maybe, maybe you know, thinking about the availability of ammonia, one of the big areas of kind of focus is, is around procurement and, and kind of the, the quality of supply, whether it be, you know, looking for the lowest carbon or looking for, you know, uh, you know kind of sustainable pathways. You know, how do you contemplate procurement in, in this kind of emerging, you know, next generation ammonia space? Uh, 
as energy, what we provide to our customers is the ammonia to power system. So we're typically not the ones procuring the fuel. However, we recognize that our customers will be procuring the fuel. And we want to make this transition as easy for our customers as possible. So because of that, we work with uh, various players across the value chain with producers of ammonia, with um, companies that move ammonia around the world that are ammonia traders, the last mile delivery companies and, and bunkering companies. And I think that's, that's really important. If we look at this from the point of view of security of supply, which we know is a issue for many low carbon fuels, I think that's also an area where ammonia has an advantage. And that's because we, we already have all of this infrastructure that was developed for ammonia as a fertilizer, but can be used equally well for facilitating use of ammonia as fuel. So we have already around 200 million metric tons of ammonia production around the world. It's roughly half of the global production of LNG. We have um, around 150 vessels around the world that can be used as ammonia carriers. They effectively double up as LPG carriers. And some of these vessels are in continuous ammonia service. So the infrastructure exists. There's a question about availability of of low-carbon molecules. And that's where you have a choice between uh, green molecules and blue molecules and other colors, of course, you know, it to accomplish the goal that we want to accomplish, this really has to be a low carbon ammonia. And I think there are two paths that industry can pursue and is pursuing already. One is the green ammonia. And what we're seeing globally is that ammonia production facilities that have been announced, roughly 50% of them will produce ammonia as uh, their main product. And sorry, what I meant is big hydrogen projects. So if you think about gigawatt plus scale green hydrogen projects, about 50% of them will produce ammonia as their main product. Then if you look at it and on the blue side, and you look, for example, in US Gulf Coast, we already see existing ammonia uh, production facilities that are being decarbonized. And incentives like 45Q, like Inflation Reduction Act, will really help these existing facilities transition from gray ammonia to blue ammonia. So I think opportunities are there. We see the industry already moving very quickly in this direction. And from the point of view of the end user, there's some optionality there. And optionality, as typically in such cases, will reduce the commercial risk to these end users. I, I, I hear what you say about the optionality, but um, because the ammonia you speak about trading now is gray, and there are not huge amounts of green or blue available. In fact, we don't even know if we can make blue cheaply. I mean, Aramco just said to Germany, sorry, but if you want to have it blue and you want to have it reach, meet this certain standard, um, we're not, we're not going to make it for you at that price. So the cost of blue is much higher than most people think. Um, and green is coming, but it's co- not coming next year in large quantities. So I'm just curious what your time frame is for when you expect 
the fuel to be available because obviously their customer is going to need both, <laughs> not just not just the, the the technology. Absolutely. So we work with ammonia producers to make sure that our customers will have that low carbon ammonia available. For our demonstration projects, it's actually the same approach. We work with producers to make sure that these volumes will be there. If we think about the industry as a whole, and perhaps how we expect our deployment to scale over time, we see a very good alignment between ammonia, low-carbon ammonia coming to the market and our systems being deployed in the market. So right now in 2023, our target is to build the first in the world ammonia-powered vessel. Uh, That will be delivered by the end of the year. The commercial deployments will happen in 2024, 2025. And then if you look at the pipeline of FIDs and potential FIDs when these projects may come to the market, I think that we'll see significant volumes initially from blue capacity, later from green, around 2026, 27. I think I... I'm very confident that this will provide our customers with the uh, low carbon molecules that that they need. I mean, maybe just to clarify on the business model so that I understand, is Energy's aim to be almost um, a mobility as a service type proposition? So you plug in the fuel behind the back of your offering and you combine both to the customer or are they two separate bilateral contracts? You know, is this kind of like the the Nikola or Tesla type model of you get everything, but it has to come through us. We might not do everything, but we package it all. Or are you just working as a partnership? So you're not at all involved in the, in the ammonia contracts is completely arm's length and you're completely partner agnostic, but you do need someone to come in and provide it. We currently work as a, as a partnership. That is, you know, what we leverage our existing business models that are traditional, for example, in maritime industry. Uh, The way this is done right now with diesel engines is that you, uh, as a customer, you get an engine or maybe a fuel cell from one supplier. That company, which in this case would be Amuji, would work with the shipyard, with naval architect, with maritime integrator, and of course with the owner or operator of the vessel. And then you have ammonia bunkering facilities, so effectively gas stations for vessels. They would procure ammonia from producers and they would also refill these vessels. You know, we also recognize that if you're the first company that does this in the industry, then you need to make sure that all of these elements come together. And we see this already in the, across the world. You know, great examples are, I mentioned before, Norway and Singapore. Norway is developing 15 bunkering facilities across, along the coast for bunkering vessels. Singapore recently announced an EUI for ammonia bunkering facilities and for power generation from ammonia. So. You know, of course, you need the whole value chain to come together, and that's true for any fuel. Where we're bullish with ammonia is that we really don't have to build it from scratch because the fuel is already available in many of these locations as cargo. So I mentioned before, uh, we have around just under 200 ports in the world 
where ammonia is already available. Typically, it's just ammonia that would be later used as fertilizer or for production of fertilizer, but it helps that it's already there. If you put it in context, there are around 600 ports around the world that have diesel or other type of carbon bunkering fuel, and there are only about 60 ports in the world that have LNG bunkering. So, of course, we need to develop much of this infrastructure for ammonia. Uh, the great thing is that we're not starting from scratch. No, and I think that's that's sort of well understood. And, and I guess one of the things that was interesting was just the stepping stone approach that you've taken with the technology. So given this focus on shipping, uh, it probably would surprise many of our listeners that you actually started with something as small as a drone. And, you know, you, and actually with all the complexities of it being a drone, that you went through the pain of doing a drone and then a tractor, and then a semi, and now doing a tugboat, right? So kind of maybe can you walk us through why you sort of went through those sort of stepping stone phases? And then I guess the obvious question is, is the sky the limit? I mean, how, how big do you see this going? Um, because that's a, that's a very broad array of applications. So, you know, where's kind of the focus? Where, where do you guys ultimately want to get to? You're spot on. It's it's been a journey, and I would say a very exciting one. We we started with a drone, a five kilowatt system. Back then, I wasn't with the company at that time, but I believe we had five employees. So, drone is about as big of a system as you can realistically build. At the time, uh, my colleagues were looking for an application that you know is a good demonstration of the technology and highlights the, the fundamental advantages. So the how compact the technology is, how flexible it is in terms of uh, power generation, being able to ramp up and down. You know, drone is a pretty good way of demonstrating that something is fairly small and, and lightweight. So that that also gave us some recognition in the industry, but it was clear that the ultimate applications of this technology are not going to be at this very small scale. The potential is, at least in the near term, maritime and power generation, and we need to get to this scale. So we've done this. As you mentioned, the second demonstration project, uh, only about 10 months later, we're able to scale the technology by a factor of 20 to 100 kilowatts. We chose Tractor, and this is, I think, very interesting uh, because we could actually refill it during the demonstration. So farmers in the U.S. use the very same ammonia that we use as fuel as a fertilizer, which means that we could put this tractor at a farm, refill it there, demonstrate it over a period of operation, uh, and then uh, move it here. It's actually right here in and the um, Brooklyn Navy Yard in, in New York. So that was increasing the scale of technology, but also progressively making the technology more mature. The next application was factor of three larger. That was the world's first semi-truck powered by ammonia. Uh, I would encourage all the listeners to just look up uh, Amogee truck. Uh, what you'll see there is a truck that looks like a normal semi-truck. It has this white um, uh, fuel storage containers on the fuel tanks 
on the bottom of the truck on both sides. And what always strikes me is it's really a, a fairly low uh, amount of fuel. And that gave us about 500 miles of range. So the next and, and last demonstration of technology, as you mentioned, will be the tugboat, one megawatt system, first ammonia powered vessel in the industry. We wanted it to be the tugboat. And, you know, I, I never built a vessel before. Uh, and I think many of, the, of us who've been in company for a while didn't necessarily have the maritime experience. But we build this maritime experience both internally uh, and through working with important industry partners. And we do it because um, that's where we see some of the very earliest opportunities for the technology. So when you asked what's, what's the limit, um, I will love if sky is the limit. I think it's the opportunities with ammonia are, are tremendous. We really see it as a fundamentally advantaged vector for hydrogen that will enable uh, decarbonization globally. But we also want to be thoughtful about the timing in which we bring ammonia as fuel to various applications. Uh, the first two are maritime and power generation. And within maritime, of course, it will also increase in scale as a function of time. So most of the applications that we're looking at now are, in some cases, actually fairly sizable vessels, but applications up to about, when we look at the very earliest projects, up to about 10 megawatts. If you think about some of the very largest systems, uh, power systems on board ships, they're closer to 80 megawatts. You're looking at, for example, very large container ships. We're not going to get there yet in the first year or two or three, but this sector, there, the opportunity within maritime sector is, is tremendous. And I think over time, as we see the fuel cell production capacity increasing, the cost of the fuel cells being driven down, that will benefit not only energy, but also many other players in the uh, hydrogen value chain, I think that will also enable us to relatively soon go after much larger vessels. As, as you point out, um, you, you want to be the size of a, a shipping vessel, a container ship, essentially, be, being able to provide that large. I mean, I know that there is, there is uh, ammonia being shipped all over the world. Um, not for these purposes. Uh, and it's also a lot of it is most of it that's being shipped. It's a small portion of the ammonia being produced because ammonia is often in the location that it's used or it is, it's, there's not a lot of trade basically of ammonia right now, even though it's a big market. I'm just curious if the timelines actually match um, because we're with smaller vessels under 300 kilometers, let's say, you could have a battery, you could have hydrogen. Um, it doesn't have to be ammonia. Um, but for the larger cargo ships, uh, ammonia makes the most sense. But ammonia might make the most sense to make green steel. And ammonia makes a lot of sense as a wrapper for hydrogen in order to be just a transport vector. So one of the reasons that you're seeing all of these hydrogen projects making ammonia is because they want to use it directly in co-firing or for marine 
but it's also steel and it's also, you know, every other usage of, of hydrogen because a lot of people are, are just producing it in order to transport it more easily and store it more easily. So I'm, I'm just curious, timeline-wise, when do you see this critical mass of, of ammonia availability and your ability to produce um, your, your technology sort of dovetailing? Like, when, when do you see that you will actually be selling in the market and uh, your um, technology will be being used on a broad scale? Great question. And I, I fully agree that, you know, there are more than one applications for ammonia out there and especially low carbon ammonia. I, I see this as an advantage. You know, one thing that we're seeing, for example, in US with large-scale hydrogen projects, it's it's somewhat difficult to secure long-term sales and purchase agreements that would be needed to underwrite this project. If ammonia is what you're producing, the the fact that as an ammonia producer you can look at few potential end users uh, and few different applications is an advantage. Um, you know, we we see the uh, potential to ammonia in in various market segments, and I think it's it's great if the world sees it the same way and will adopt it as pace. It will only increase the availability of of ammonia. If you think um, specifically about maritime industry, and this is just one of the segments that we're we're pursuing. You know, we're actively working on ammonia to power systems, for example, for distributed power generation. But specifically looking at maritime, the maritime sector needs to decarbonize. It's a fairly slow to move industry. It's an industry where the lifetime of an asset is long. It's not like with cars or trucks where this may be, you know, maybe between five and 15 years. Maritime vessels are operated for 20, 25 years and more. And now if you think about what needs to be accomplished, the guidance from the IMO, you know, the uh, net zero goals and 40% reduction by 2030, there needs to be a solution to accomplish that. What we're seeing in maritime is that the scale, the amount of fuel that needs to be stored really favors ammonia because of high energy density, and the ease of storing larger volumes of ammonia, which, for example, with compressed hydrogen, that would be very challenging because at that point you need multiple small tanks and the costs don't scale very well with size. So, you know, it's, it's a really great opportunity for the maritime sector. And in terms of adoption, uh, and the scale of this adoption. Uh, we're going to have first commercial projects in 2024. And I think it's somewhere around this 2025-26 timeline where you'll see a, a quite strong inflection. When we look at the potential, uh, confirmed and potential ammonia projects and what will be required, I think the fuel will be there. You know, if we look, for example, at a 2-MTA ammonia production plant, which, you know, in the near term, of course, this would be fairly large for a green production facility, but very much doable for blue, and we're seeing such assets. As you know, there are multiple multi-10 MTA green ammonia projects in pipeline uh, later on. 
I think the fuel will be there. So a two MTA facility can provide enough fuel to power more than 1,000 tugboats, for example. So I think the fuel for the early adoption will be there. Perhaps the question is in the longer term, when you start looking at 2030, 2040, how the, the growth in production of ammonia will or will not be able to meet the demand. And I think that ultimately comes down to the production cost and scale of hydrogen. Because it's very easy once you have, it's maybe not technologically easy, but it has been very well proven once you have hydrogen, how to produce uh, ammonia from it. It can be done reliably. It can be done at cost, at a reasonable cost. Yeah, and I think I think fair point. Really, the kind of asset lifetime and and some of the kind of deployment challenges that when you're trying to introduce new kind of technology into an incumbent industry that has you know very very set ways of working, there's a challenge to to kind of enabling that and encouraging that, but also ramping that in a, in a way that that kind of doesn't overly expose you. I suppose you know thinking about that then and, and thinking about emoji or emoji kind of directly. You know, you've had a raft of kind of strategic investors coming in. You've you've had you know some very very big names in the in the kind of uh, you know everybody from Saudi Aramco to to Amazon's Climate Pledge Fund. You know, how are those those you know strategic partnership with these these very reputable and and well re- well regarded funds helping you to manage that kind of almost bridge within this kind of target sector? Yeah, they're they're great, and we've been very fortunate to have the investors that we do. So Amogy to date has raised uh, about $220 million over the last two and a half years. As you mentioned, uh, Amazon's Climate Pledge Fund, Aramco, SK have been with us for, uh, for a longer time. In the last Series B that we closed, we also got Tomasek, MOL, Yanmar, uh, Zion, and, and others. So um, it's, it's really fortunate. I think it's also a responsibility for any startup to make good use of these resources and the opportunities that this, this provides. From our perspective, and maybe from perspective of our investors, what they, I believe, see with us is not only a good investment opportunity, but also an opportunity in many cases to reduce the scope one and two emissions of their own operations or enable the whole industry to move forward. So investors have been very important from the point of view of connecting us with the right people, Um, but The way we're choosing the investors, it's also we want to work with companies that know the space, that know the ammonia value chain or the value chains where ammonia uh, may provide alternative low carbon solution or investors that have significant exposure to maritime or power generation or other sectors. So altogether, it's been it's been a really, really great experience and, and we're extremely fortunate. 
That's fantastic. Um, I know that MOG aims to reduce over 5 billion metric tons of CO2 equivalent emissions by 2040, which you say reduces 10% of total greenhouse gas emissions. But what sectors would this include um, by 2040? So giving you sort of the full run, <laughs> what, what would be included in order to hit that goal? Can you, can you give us a, just a glimpse of what that roadmap would be? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, the target is five gigatons of CO2. Currently, the global emissions are about 50 gigatons. If you look at how they're distributed, uh, a little bit more than 50% is in power generation and about 20% is in transportation. So between the two segments, they cover about uh, 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So these are the industries that we're going after. Then if you look within the transportation sector, you know, there are applications there like passenger vehicles, which are very successfully decarbonized using batteries. Of course, battery is not a complete solution. You still need renewable electricity, uh, but the battery electric vehicles have been quite successful in the market. The uh, applications that we're going after are applications that cannot be easily decarbonized with batteries. So you can think of heavy-duty transportation applications such as maritime shipping, rail, heavy-duty transportation, both off-road as well as on-road. And then, of course, there's the whole power generation side. On the power generation, we see increasingly commitment from interest and commitment from various governments in using ammonia for power generation. So Japan has its own target, over 3 million metric tons by 2030. South Korea, I believe, has over 4% by 2030. Recently, there was a very interesting EOI. In Singapore, I mentioned before, both for bunkering and power generation. So I think increasingly the world sees potential in ammonia as becoming a very effective long-distance vector for, for hydrogen. You know, that's also my background and how I became interested in ammonia. Uh, I used to do a lot of work at on LNG. As I understood the ammonia space better, it really began to emerge in, in my eyes that ammonia can be the LNG um, version 2.0. And many of these countries that currently import large volumes of LNG and are also very focused on decarbonization, they'll want to switch to a more carbon neutral fuel and ammonia is, is a great fuel for this purpose. I obviously agree with you being in the ammonia business myself, but <laughs> yeah. hopefully uh, this will go a little bit quicker than LNG. It's, it's a good baseline to match, but... Uh, I think we need to, to speed it up if we're to hit these goals, especially just your goals, <laughs> but, but the uh, the goals for, for Earth in general. Um, but thank you so much for um, coming to join us on the podcast. Uh, it was great to hear from you and, and all of the uh, endeavors at Amogee. You have um, keep getting larger. I want to see what's after the tugboat. I, I feel like it has to be something as much fun as the tractor. 
so so next time invite us yeah exactly we can exactly. come and do a little visit so <laughs> yeah thank you so much and uh, of course we would love to have you here and if any of the listeners want to connect as well uh, we're here in new york and our doors are open fantastic and uh, i'm sure many of our listeners will thanks for coming on the show thank you so much All right, Alicia, this is your neck of the woods now. So um, what do we think? Ammonia is close to my heart. I, I do like to hear other people getting excited about it. I'm not sure uh, Masik was uh, jumping up and down, but he seems to be a very um, thorough and uh, thoughtful fellow. So I have found, though, uh, interesting to me uh, because it is essentially a fuel cell that they've created. I know I know they call it the MOG uh, technology, but after it was described, it sounded a lot like an ammonia fuel cell to me. Um, and given that the the typical ICE, the typical internal combustion engine for long distance shipping is so much more efficient than a fuel cell, I wonder if they're really targeting sort of a shorter term uh, niche market, maybe to go service offshore wind, to help with bunkering, to do just shorter distances and potentially, you know, smaller vessels. But uh, I'm I'm keen to see how they managed to pull it off because, you know, they're not going to be buying ammonia, but they do need to make sure that ammonia is available for their customers. So that's yet another thing that has to dovetail for them, much more so than I would say if you're selling directly to shipping and they just need to have a ship, right? And, and you don't need to... Um, worry about uh, providing technology or, and fuel, you're just providing fuel. That, that, that was what my thoughts. I mean, it, it's great to see people embracing ammonia. <laughs> I'm always happy to hear it. And, and again, you see Japan just stepping up and, and, you know, fairly quietly, but they were there all along. And, and I think, you know, it, it's going to be really one of the things that drives the industry forward faster. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a few pits to unpack here for sure, right? Because, you know, in the first instance, as you, as you rightly flag, there's some trade-off choices that you make around, you know, some of the range and volume management around shipping for sure. But also, you know, and I, and I think, I think he rightly flags, you know, first vessel for shipping being available coming out in maybe 2023 towards the end maybe 2024 and then commercial vessels starting to emerge the year after that kind of thing so that's that's certainly a, a rollout challenge and then to your to your very very right point when you suddenly have this demand emerge how do you supply it becomes the critical piece and, and similarly for the power units that's the same question so you know the technology to to application is is, is going to be um, you know that's going to be an interesting transition point. By the same token, as we kind of get into this, you know, where you see kind of um, challenges around cracking technology maturity, when we see kind of how the the kind of competition rolls out for using these different molecules, it it starts to be a different a different kind of play and. It's a it's an interesting one to also add in that kind of distributed power systems play because, you know, obviously we've seen some of that with I think Netflix and possibly Amazon as well looking at these uh, disaggregated generation units and how you manage that kind of molecular combustion at the smaller scale because you know I'll use the internal combustion engine as the example when you have the 
the car, it's the 20 to 24, 25% efficiency in the internal combustion engine. When you talk about a shipper, shipping engine, you know, those conventionally today are up in the 40, 45% range of efficiency. And, and similarly, when we see these technology streams roll out, you're going to get trade-off dynamics that, that we really need to get into. But to your point, and I think, uh, um, I think, I think rightly flagged as well, was ammonia as a molecule and in dynamism um, in terms of its storage and storability, its tradeability, and in the optionality that uh, Magic uh, um, flagged as well, uh, gives us a really, really strong opportunity to to kind of sort out some of these challenges and, and gives us a flexibility to use some of that pre-existing infrastructure. So it's it's certainly an interesting space, but there's um we're 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 rediscovering some of these new uh, new points and trade-offs again. No, no, definitely, I agree with you. Um, and it's it's um it's it's interesting to hear him refer to ammonia as being cheap because obviously you know, we're trying to make it as cheaply as possible and we want it to get into a, a price that is bearable uh, the same way that, that wind and solar, once the price came down, that's that's when it really took off. But today's ammonia is obviously not cheap, especially in comparison to your other options if they are, if it's diesel or, or you know, any of the other polluting options. So I think he might be surprised to find ammonia being a bit more expensive than he expects. But I think it just shows also how many markets there are for ammonia. It's not just the um, maritime market. It's also the distributed power, as you said. It's the cogeneration. It could be direct to make green steel. There's uh, still more that we can uh, find out about ammonia. But even right now, there are ammonia sort of gensets, uh, ammonia gensets uh, all over Mexico. Um, a, a lot of different places are, are using this technology, not necessarily um the energy technology, but you know, a different technology in order to uh, to provide power in these really desolate places that you know just not only do they not have a source of power, but they don't have they're so far away that that bringing in the supply is is a pain as well and and storage and whatnot. So it's much easier to store the ammonia. But um, yes, another angle. I think this it's interesting that this that we haven't actually seen a company really like this yet, you know, who, who have thought about maritime and, and have thought about um, the distributed power a little bit more. So it's a, I think it was kind of an interesting one. Any, anything else catch your eye? I'm, well, I'm, I'm thinking about the broader context, uh, in, as you rightly flag, right? This, this, there's not a lot of folks walking around specifically with this type of a value proposition, I think. And you know, there's definitely folks offering some similar aspects, but but not in, in this kind of combined approach. I suppose combined is probably not the right word, but um, and I think in the context of some of the conversations we're seeing around ammonia export, particularly some of the conversations about infrastructure rollout, um, some of these combined kind of solution plays, or or kind of that kind of um, dexterity between either the ship and the landing point starts becoming very interesting and not going to dive down too far into the into the weeds on it but there are there are some interesting kind of co-plays here that could be very very interesting whether it be you know at a port or for that matter whether it could be further down within you know kind of um you know support structure users for you know kind of maybe energy generation for kind of 
pass-through facilities and things like this. So there's there's some interesting um, structural tissue that that some of this could very interestingly play into, and and would be very interested to see how how rollout occurs here. Yeah, I mean, he, he mentioned a little bit about uh, bunkering, and I think they have some plans to potentially, you know, have their fuel cell in a small bunkering vessel. So you know that vessel would just run in and out of port and sort of chase the cargo vessel with with the fuel and you know automatically attach and and fill and then go back to port get some more and chase chase the cargo vessel again because those cargo vessels are really really moving and it, it sort of reminds me of I don't know if you ever saw this cartoon with there was like a father plane and a baby plane <laughs> and the father plane <laughs> was always, you know, flying so much faster. The baby's trying to keep up. And that <laughs> sort of reminds me of that for a Marine. Um, you're going to have these, these little vessels that are just, you know, going at full tilt to catch this, this heavy cargo ship that just is not going to stop for anything. It's just moving along, but uh, it's a funny vision, um, but I think it's, it's definitely a market. So definitely wish them luck because I'm, well, I'm hoping that we and, and others will have the ammonia for their customers. And this is yet another string of applications that will decarbonize. So, um, you know, I think it's a, a great to have them amongst the, options out there. And, and certainly they've done a fantastic, fantastic job fundraising. And so hopefully that converts into a fantastic job running the company, which is unfortunate that people have to do both. <laughs> yeah. I suppose, I suppose maybe, maybe as a kind of almost a sense check question or maybe a temperature mm-hmm. check question, you know, I certainly feel, you know, having at the at the top of the episode, having flagged, I've been traveling the world, going to conferences for the last month or so. Um, yeah, that the momentum around ammonia and the engagement around ammonia, particularly now, has really taken a like a sophisticated step forward. It's not just an and ammonia kind of conversation yeah. anymore. Is that something that you as, as somebody who's in the, the production side on the molecule, like, like, are you feeling that kind of too or? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm sensing a definite uh, ammonia is the answer medium to long term. And, and it all comes back to just never running out of the core components. You know, you're not going to run out of the nitrogen, the wind, the solar, and the seawater. And all the other options are really limited by things like biogenic CO2. And if you think about methanol, which, you know, we just had Maersk announce their first methanol ship, which I think was named Ursula, or at least um, was the ceremony with the champagne occurred with the with the EU um, president. And, uh, and MSC, I think, just also announced an ammonia ship, and it had something to do with Sophia Loren. So, you know, we've got some fancy methanol ships out there, and I think that is definitely expected in the short term because the ammonia is just not available but I don't think there's been a methanol offtake to date. So Maersk is is making its own methanol with partners, but still it's making its own. And I think there's definitely a lot of wait and see because there are a lot of ships that are heading towards end of life. And I think people would ideally buy a new vessel that has all of the upgrades with all the things that save efficiencies, 
plus you switch over to the green fuel and then the total cost of ownership is a lot less painful rather than retrofitting and then you have the same ship and it's it's toward the end of its life, right? And it, nobody wants to retrofit, you know, for four years. So shipping is in sort of an awkward situation because uh, so many ships are at the end of their life, but they don't want to order something that they don't want to have for 40 years. <laughs> but I think I think methanol will, will definitely be the next couple of years before there's uh, enough ammonia available. But then I think it really, ammonia will start taking off and it'll just grow bigger and bigger and it will be highly competitive. And I also think we've always got this situation in which people are beginning to recognize that aviation is is really, it it really is held back by a design of a new aircraft because that's going to take 15 years. So aviation really only has like e-kerosene, these uh, SAF sin fuels to work with. And that's going to be the major consumer of this biogenic CO2 versus methanol for shipping because shipping does have other options. And, and we obviously both can use biofuel, but we know that biofuels uh, run out quite easily and, and get driven up in price really high if, if there's demand. So I, I don't see methanol as a long-term solution for shipping by any stretch, but it if they can get them out on the water right now and it's making a positive difference in the right, you know, the right direction, then uh, all power to them. And, and hopefully we just get these ammonia vessels in sooner. Yeah. I have, I, I agree broadly really uh, the biogenic uh, CO2 access. It's going to be a, it's going to be a huge bottleneck. I think the one thing that this, I think this is the final point I'll make on it, but like the shipping industry went through, the low sulfur um, shipping fuels transition, you know, a few years back and has, you know, done the dual fuel play before and has gone through this kind of transitional challenge and the market upset. I think there is a desire and an appetite to avoid that murky middle as much as possible on the shipping kind of owner and operator side going forward and therefore, you know, looking for concrete transitional steps it seems to be a theme given that experience. And and the, the reason I flag it is we haven't had that in a lot of other places and in a lot of other sectors. And therefore the relative operator maturity, I think is, well, people don't necessarily f- not generally understand how much pain can be involved in some of these structural transitions. So um, yeah, it's going to be, shipping can move I think reasonably quickly in a, in a funny sort of way compared to possibly some of the the, the areas that you flagged as well even yeah they they does take some time but uh, in comparison to others it's they're 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 pretty quick <laughs> and and I think the will is there you know amongst a, a great group of, of shipping companies so that's that's really positive watch this space right exactly <laughs> That was everything about hydrogen, hosted by the team Patrick Malloy, Alicia Eastman, and Chris Jackson. If you have a question for the hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com. Or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at about hydrogen. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.